In the summer of 2009, after my freshman year, I went on a summer project with crew to Alaska. And about halfway through uh, on that project, you take a midsummer camping trip. And so you go out for a few days uh, into the Alaskan wilderness. You take a boat out to an island off uh, that's way, you know, kind of out there. And so you're in the middle of nowhere. And so uh, I want you to understand that, that we're going on a, on, a, on a long hike. Like it was day one and like it's a, it's a big long hike to get to our campsite. And this isn't like going to the pinnacles and you have a nice like paved pathway. No, this is the Alaskan wilderness. It's a rough hike. Uh, and we're going up a mountain. So a few hours in, we're in the thick of the Alaskan wilderness, and our hike leader tells us that we're going to take a rest. Now, we've been, we've been going for like three hours, so this is a well-earned and well-needed rest. And so we all collapse. Like, we got our packs on, and we drop them off, and we're just like, oh, okay, like, finally. Because yet, he kind of keeps going a little bit. And so we're all half passed out. He, he kind of goes out a little bit and he starts to encircle us. Like he's going around us kind of in a broad perimeter. And he's looking like what the only way I can describe him is like a bird that's about to get eaten by something. Like he's just real jittery looking around. And when you're in Alaska, there's bears. And so that's my first thought is, oh no, like something's about, about to happen. So finally we start to notice him being a weirdo and we go, hey, uh, what's going on? And he, he you know, he comes back, he's like, oh, no, nothing, nothing. I'm just making sure, you know, but what, making something up. And so there's like a moment of awkwardness, and then he tells us, guys, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea where we are. And so uh, neither do we, because he's the hike leader. It was his job to know where to go. So this guy, not a good leader, confidently, like we've been, he's been off the trail for a while now, and he was confidently leading us into this legitimately dangerous situation. Obviously, we got out because I'm here, but you know. And so in the time of our text today, the people of God are under the rule of an unwise, unfit leader, okay? He was foolish and evil, and he led them into dangerous territory. And so Isaiah is delivering a prophecy of judgment against both the people of God and the Assyrians. To bring, uh, so I'm going to bring us up to speed real quick just to kind of get us into context. God's people are in two nations. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, and Judah's king Ahaz fears that he's going to be attacked by Israel and uh, Syria. And so uh, he decides that he's going to look over to the 800-pound gorilla of a nation in Assyria, Assyria, and go, hey, you guys come help us, protect us. And Isaiah screams in his face and goes, don't do this, but trust in the Lord. If you remember back when Eric was preaching, that's this moment. And Ahaz just ignores the prophet's words uh, and forms the alliance anyway, choosing to find protection in the swords and chariots of a pagan nation rather than under the protective wings of God. And so then Isaiah prophesies what will happen. This is at the end of chapter 10, that the Assyrians will trample God's people underfoot, that he'll use the Assyrians as a rod of discipline against his own people because of their idolatry and rebellion. But there, there will remain a faithful remnant in uh, among God's people, and they will turn back to him. And then his judgment will turn away from his people and head towards the Assyrians. And so the acts that God used to cut his people down, he will then turn and cut down. Chapter 10, verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. And the great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. 
So uh, the picture that Isaiah gives is Assyria is this massive, huge redwood forest, right? Way up into the sky, hundreds of feet up with their canopies covering the ground so that there's uh, no light can get through them, only shade. And then in one swipe, God's going to cut those trees down to nothing but stumps. And this once mighty forest of a nation is now completely decimated. And there's stumps as far as the eye can see. This, is, this would be terrifying to those who hear this prophecy because it was in Assyria that the people of God placed their hope. The people of Judah placed their hope in Assyria, believing they would be protected by them. And now that forest is gone. So they are exposed. There is no protection for them from the Assyrians. They are helpless. And it's a picture of total devastation, not just of Assyria, but of uh, Judah's hope as well. And so, now we get to our text today. God puts it in the mouth of Isaiah to speak a word of hope. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So I want you to just imagine this. Thousands of stumps, as far as the eye can see, out onto the horizon, and way out, off into the distance, beyond the haze, the fog, there's this tiny little green twig that starts to sprout up. And Isaiah points to that little twig. He says, way out there, that's your hope. A small, seemingly insignificant shoot of new growth. And this twig rises out of the stump of Jesse. What in the world are we talking about here? Prophecy can be a little odd. Who is Jesse? Why is it a stump? So Jesse was King David's dad. David is the king of whom God said, your throne shall be established forever. And it was through David's kingly lineage that God's people would eventually be blessed by a coming king that would be called Messiah. So this prophecy speaks of a future hope through a future king in the line of David. This Messiah would be one to come and redeem God's people and lead them into an everlasting peaceful kingdom. But why did Isaiah refer to the stump of Jesse and not David? David's the one that the promise came to, so why are we going back to Jesse? Well, he did this because the people needed not just another king in David's line, but a new David. This shoot would not just be another king in David's line. He would be a new, better David, the true king who would sit on the throne forever. And this king would be the true hope of God's people. And he is our hope today. It's no different. And so we have to ask ourselves now, what do we find our hope in? Judah looked to Assyria for protection and it was decimated, right? Ahaz led God's people to place their hope in something that's not God, and it led them to destruction. See, misplaced hope is not simply disappointing. It is potentially devastating. And God may be the, be the one to bring the devastation. Notice it wasn't a happenstance that Assyria fell. God did it. He's the one that said, nope, you're not finding your hope in that, so I'm going to cut the legs out from under your hope so that, why? You will fall into my arms and to get you to a point where you have nothing left but me to hope in. And I wonder, you know, there's a lot 
in the culture just kind of around Christmas, we talk about like hope and joy and light and all those kinds of things. And so it's kind of on, on folks' minds. And I wonder this Christmas, what do we put our hope in? Like, what are you hoping for? What were you hoping will happen that will bring you the peace that Christmas promises? And I think the way you know that is what makes you angry, what bothers you, and what do you long for, right? I just want this relationship to work. I want to be reconciled to that person, or I just want to date that person. I just want the doctors to figure out what is wrong with this body. I just want to have my family all together for Christmas, but because of the last year, everybody hates each other. I just want 2022 to be better than 21. And all God's people said, amen. No. (laughs) But listen, these these aren't bad hopes, okay? They're not. But if they are our ultimate hope, like that's the thing we're longing for to bring us satisfaction and peace, we're going to miss the better, greater hope. If our hope is in circumstantial change, we are in deep trouble because circumstances change all the time. Our hope is in anything else but God we will not find the joy and peace we long for. This coming king is the true source of Judah's hope. And the question we have to ask is, is he ours? This king from Jesse's roots, the prophet says, as we continue on the next half of verse one, will bear fruit, meaning that from him will come a fruitful kingdom, a kingdom of life, plenty, and abundance. Bearing fruit describes both his rule and his character. Right? So this fruitful, plentiful kingdom will flow out from this fruitful king because he will be marked by good fruit, which goes on to be explained in verse 2. This fruit he would bear, read with me here. You don't have to actually read it out loud, but read it. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here's where we see Hope's character. The spirit shall rest upon him. This coming king will be the spirit-endowed one. So throughout the Old Testament, there are instances where the spirit of God rushes upon a person. Think of it just kind of comes around them for a momentary supernatural act. Samson in his strength, uh, Gideon amassing a massive army going out to protect the, the people of Israel. Uh, David was, was, uh, had the spirit come upon him to wisely govern Ezekiel to speak prophecy. And in all these instances, it's a temporary move of the Spirit on a person to do a particular spectacular act. But with this coming king, it says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Right? There's, a, there's a wholeness here, a completeness here, a tying of the Spirit with this king. The Spirit will be, will be with him in a unique way, and he will be defined as someone who's constantly in step with God throughout his life. And the resting of this Spirit will be proof that he's God's chosen Messiah. And this Messiah will live empowered by the Spirit of God. And there's a few things that this Spirit-empowered, fruitful king will be marked by. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. The picture here is someone who is completely wise, who knows God and does what God wants him to do. Now, this is a direct affront to both King Ahaz and the king of Assyria, who in their foolishness and pride led their people to destruction. They neither knew God nor cared what he thought or what he said. 
There was no fear of God in them. But this new king will reign with full wisdom and will live according to that wisdom. So both his knowledge and his life are in step with the spirit. Because knowledge is truth applied to life. Have you ever been under a leader, whether a boss, governing official, something like that, who's just an outright fool? Some people are like, yeah, you, no. Um, Don't name names. Uh, But it's miserable. It really is. A foolish leader leads people to destruction. He doesn't lead them to life and plenty. They make decisions that, whether by their bad character or bad judgment, uh, wreck what's around them. But this king leads with perfect wisdom, perfect character. And so he's a joy to follow because he's both fully wise and fully good. And we see this spirit-empowered wisdom throughout all of Jesus' life in the Gospels. So at his baptism, the Spirit of God descends on Christ as a dove. That's what the Scriptures say. And it rests upon him. And he consistently displays great wisdom throughout his life. When he was 12, his parents forgot him in Jerusalem. So even Jesus' parents left him somewhere. So be encouraged. And they remembered him while they were headed home. And so they're headed back to Jerusalem, probably having a big old argument. And and the text says in Luke, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And this this is where it's wild. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So these are the teachers of the law, like the people who who run the synagogue and those who are around were amazed at the wisdom of a 12-year-old. Now, I don't know many 12-year-olds. Let me rephrase that. I know no 12-year-olds that I've talked to and been like, wow, you are a genius. Normally it's like, you idiot, quit, you know? So as we've been walking through the book of Mark together, uh, before we got to this Christmas series, we've seen uh, Jesus go multiple times, brain to brain, with the religious elite, the religious leaders, and the intellectuals of the day, and he consistently confounds them. Not just like slightly proves them wrong, like embarrasses them in front of everybody. He's this all-wise, righteous king, and he rules and reigns with perfect wisdom. Listen, this is a great comfort if you follow him. (laughs) Because if you follow the one who has perfect wisdom, you don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to lead you into folly. You can trust him. He's all wise and all good. There's not a tinge of deception or shadow in him. He does not lie. And yet, I'll be honest with you, we, we wrestle with this. We struggle to believe this because we don't see Jesus as the all wise leader who leads us into the good. We say we do. We check off our doctrine card like, yeah, I believe that. Boom. Like, I'm, I'm a member here. Like, that was part of the deal. I had to say I follow Jesus, you know. Uh, but We live as though we're that king. We're wise in our own eyes, trusting ourselves to lead. We don't consider the Lord and walk, we don't walk in step with the Spirit through the Word of God, and this is the path of a fool. And if you're like me, you make foolish decisions all the time. Don't know what to do, don't know what's right, don't know, and even if we do know what's right, and we do know what we're supposed to do, we sit there and choose the opposite. It's because we delight in the wrong thing. Jesus is not like us, and we need him to come and lead us in his wisdom. But we don't just need him to lead us in wisdom. We need us to lead him in his delight. We have the wrong kinds of affections. We need Jesus's affections. Look with me in the first part of verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
The word delight here refers to breathing in a pleasing aroma. Like imagine a perfectly seasoned ribeye being slid in front of you, right? The steam's coming up and it just smells amazing. You start to salivate, your stomach starts to turn, like I'm ready to, to like go ahead and get the prayer done because I'm ready to dig in here. If you're vegetarian, I don't have an, op- a, a, an example for you because I don't, I don't know about that. And that's the picture here is, is, is that this king's appetite, this hunger leads him to fear the Lord. He desires more than anything to please God. And he finds his greatest pleasure and satisfaction in doing that. To fear the Lord is to know him and do what he desires, to revere him as the ultimate authority. And this, to please his father, was Jesus' delight. He delighted in doing what the father told him to do. An example of this is when he's ministering to the woman at the well a Samaritan woman, and he reveals himself as the long-awaited Messiah, and uh, the disciples were, went into town to go get some food. Uh, they're bringing it back, and uh, there's a crowd that starts to amass, and they're like, hey, you got to eat. You're going to get wore out, right? So they're urging him to eat something, but he passes on lunch, and he says, hey, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, somebody else brought him something to eat? And Jesus probably rubs his temples and then says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' life was committed wholeheartedly with great passion to the glory of his Father every single moment, to please him. His zeal was to be about and make much of his Father. And I do wonder how many of us could honestly say the same. Like, when was the last time you were excited about what God's doing? I hope it's often. How much are, but how often were you excited not just what he's doing kind of out there, but excited about what he's calling you to do. I think sometimes we begrudge, we know what's right, and we're like, man, I have to do this? I have to love my spouse? I have to go and be kind to them at Christmas? When that displays in us that we do not believe Christ is the good, wise leader, we say he is. Let's just talk about Christmas, right? It's a Christmas sermon. Probably should talk about Christmas. December, when, this is, I'll give you a personal example. December 1st rolls around. I have the best of intentions of making Christmas all about Jesus. We buy the, the Advent devotional. We got this book called The Jesse Tree. We read with our kids. And I'm like, every day at 7 p.m., we're going to do this and we're going to get it done. And by day, what are we on? Like, what is it today? The 12th? Yeah. Not, not doing great, you know? Didn't, didn't, didn't really make it to the 12th one. Actually, in Jesse Tree, we did it. So, whoop, nailed it. Um, and, and it, and it becomes, I'll just be honest with you, it becomes about other things. Or it becomes about getting the thing done rather than, than leading us to, to delight in Jesus. This is what our heart does over and over again. We get lulled to sleep in our delight of, of, of the Lord. There's not a single one of us who could honestly say that fearing the Lord and making him known is our daily passion. And that's sin. But praise God that Jesus never wavered in that aim. There was never a day when he was like, I don't want to do what you say. It was his delight. It was his treasure. And it's of him that the Father says, I am well pleased. Here's the good news. If you're in him, if you trust Christ, God says the same thing about you even when you fail. And when God sees you, he doesn't turn away with disgust or anger. He says of you, I am well, please. But trust Christ. (laughs) 
Give yourself wholly over to his rule and reign in your life because his reign is good, as we'll see in the next section. Next part of, of verse three. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So this coming king's rule, unlike Ahaz, will not be based on outward appearances. See, King Ahaz saw the external might of Assyria and went, that's where I'm going. They got a whole, they got a big old army. That guy's doing great. Look at all the towns they've taken over. That's our safe bet. But the coming, and he was led, not by what God said, but what his eyes saw. But the coming king, this Messiah, won't be like Ahaz. In his wisdom, he'll judge by the hidden man of the heart. He will know the deep recesses of a person. He will understand things to a degree uh, that, that is beyond natural. It goes into the supernatural. He'll be able to see behind the curtain of a human heart, and his judgments will be based in reality, not in external appearances. And Jesus displays this wisdom in his famous woes to the Pharisees. Woes, W-O-E. As we've learned from our study of Mark, the Pharisees were the religious uh, leaders. Uh, they were the who's who in Jesus' day, and by all appearances were very righteous. And yet Jesus sees through their thin little outer shell of playing piety into their hearts. And this is what he calls them in Matthew 23. Hypocrites, blind gods, children of hell, whitewashed tombs. He's not fooled by status, false religion, money, or reputation. He sees the inner man as he really is. And I pray that this is not us, that, that we're not playing piety, playing religion with Jesus. There may be some here who, who, who you've got people fooled. And when folks look at you, they see a, an outwardly dev devoutly religious person, one of the good ones. You sing the carols loudly, repost everything from the church's social media, read the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve, even though nobody wants you to, come to our Christmas Eve service, that's a plug, uh, and yet you've actually not submitted to Christ. All of those things are about you. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't base doesn't ju his judgment on all those external things. There's no pretending with him. You can't convince Jesus that you're good when you are dead in your sin. And some of you think you've convinced Jesus of that. Some of you have convinced yourself that, you're, that you have convinced Jesus you're for him when really you're for yourself. And I plead with you, he's not fooled. He sees right through it. Stop playing games. Because he will judge you and his judgment will be right. It will not be unfair. You can either be righteously judged by his work or your own. That's for the prideful one who believes they can please the Lord and love themselves. But for the poor in spirit, those who are meek before the Lord, he judges for them. Verse four, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Boy, that ramped up quick, didn't it? It's this wise king and we're like, yeah, and then it gets to kill the wicked. Whoa, okay, hold on. King Ahaz favored the powerful. He saw the powerful pagan nations near him and adopted their worship practices. And these are horrible things. Constructing uh, uh, these, these tall towers, altars to the pagan god, fabricating idols. And the worst of all is he, is he even sacrificed his own children on fire. 
as an offering to these pagan gods. His judgments were wholly unrighteous, and he led the people into that kind of sin. But this coming king will judge with righteousness and with equity. His perfect character will be reflected in his judgments. They will be right and fair for everybody. He will not be swayed by bribes or influence, but will judge impartially, whether poor, rich, meek, or powerful. He will judge in power with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. So basically, he will speak and it will happen. He doesn't need a sword, doesn't need an axe, doesn't need a big army. He's going to say, yep, that's it, judgment, boom, it's done. Breath has a strong connotation with the spirit. Remember, this is the spirit endowed one. And when the spirit moves, things happen. Before there was anything, the spirit hovered in nothingness. And God spoke, and it happened. The breath of God created everything. When this king king speaks, it's to impose the divine will. So the, the word of this king is divine. And what's the result of his judgment? The wicked are killed. And this is actually good news. I know that sounds harsh, but it's good news. Because of the wickedness of the rulers of Judah, the people are in peril. Wicked people lead to wicked outcomes. But this king will do away with all that and will lead his people into a righteous future. And this is something that we actually want. Think about the leaders in your, it, I don't, I'm not going to, but like, we want good governance. I gotta be real careful, don't I? We want good governance, okay? I'm not saying more than you think I am, I promise. Like think about all of the foolish, unwise, evil people that have led, even in our own country, Right? I tried to look it up this morning to make sure I get my facts straight, and it's hard to know. And it's, it's mind-blowing to even think about this. But there, And I know we talk about it a lot, but it's because it's such an evil in our culture. There's almost 800,000, roughly, children who are killed every single year by abortion. Those evil people keep doing evil things, keep leading in evil directions, and no one will just get it done. Powerful people pay off others they've abused and mistreated, and we just, everybody just moves on like it's no big deal. We hear stories of corruption and bribery, and our blood boils. We're angry about it. We see injustice, and we long for the, for the reign of a wise, good king. But here's the problem, because we can get real self-righteous right now. Scripture's really clear on who's wicked, and it's everybody. Psalm 14 describes God looking down to see if there are any anybody among his people, of his own people, who are seeking after him. And it says, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Not a single person I can find. The Apostle Paul says this too, all sin and fall short of the glory of God in Romans. And so if this king is going to come and justly, fairly, and righteously judge, then we all fall under that judgment. And that's not good news. But it's right. And it's good because this king is completely righteous. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Go back to King Ahaz, deeply unrighteous and unfaithful to the Lord and to his people. He bucked God's rule and did what was right in his own eyes. But this coming king will not be unfaithful, but faithful. He will not be unrighteous, but righteous. He will be marked by those things. Righteousness is being completely right. All of his thoughts, motivations, actions, decisions, etc., 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 are completely and totally right in step with the Lord, and he will always do right and always faithfully carry out his service before God. 
The phrase belt of his waist and belt of his loins illustrate two things. One, a willingness and readiness for action. Like, I'm, all right, let's go. Like, I'm ready to do the right thing. I'm ready to be faithful. This, this will mark him. And how it ties all things together, right? Like your belt kind of keeps it all together. This king will always be ready to follow God's divine will and will always do it. Everything he does will be righteous. So his judgment of the wicked is right. And this is both the joy and terror of Christmas. From where we stand today, this king has come in the person of Jesus. He is our righteous, faithful king. So the joy of Christmas is that he's come to bring about a just, righteous kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done, what he continues to do. But the terror of Christmas is that we are not just or righteous. We fall in the wicked category. So what do we do? The good news that Jesus took on the judgment that we deserve. Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve to be banished from God's presence. And Jesus says, I'll take that. This good and wise king in his wisdom took the punishment you and I deserve on himself so that we would not have to endure it. He was judged as if he were sin itself. But he's perfectly righteous. So he didn't deserve to die. That's why he can be our substitute. That's why he can stand in our place. The sinless became sin so that sinners could become sinless. And he's the only one who can righteously deal with our sin. And at his death, he delivered the death blow to sin, death, and Satan when he struck them with the rod of his mouth when he said, it is done. The wonder of Christmas is that this good king has come and this prophecy points us to that glorious truth. But this prophecy is kind of a two for one, okay? It points to the king that has come. It also points to the king that will come again. And there's gonna be a day when Jesus rips the sky open and all people will bow down before him and will be judged. And they will be judged either by their righteousness or his You're either judged by God through Christ or apart from Christ, and you cannot stand. You cannot stand the judgment of God. But for all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God, and this is our hope. So I plead with you, if you do not trust Christ, if you think it's a fairy tale, if if you're just trying to figure out, or if you think that Jesus is just a way for you to be a little bit better today, to have a little bit more peace in your life, Bow the knee before the king because you can't stand the judgment, but he did. One final thought. This prophecy did not come true for nearly 700 years. Okay? It's a long time. I tried to figure out how many generations it was and I can't do math, so, but it's a long time. For 700, and that 700 years, by the way, things got way worse for Israel, for Judah, They were enslaved, put into captivity. They continued on in sin. They were oppressed, and even God stopped speaking to them. That's the worst judgment of all. However, God is faithful, and he is good, and he delivered on his promise. And when hope came, it came in a mind-blowingly powerful way that altered the course of human history. God himself taking on human flesh being born of a virgin, 
living a perfectly righteous life that we need to be saved and dying a death we deserve, giving us an everlasting hope of life with God forever. And for some folks here, hope feels really abstract. It feels really far away, like 700 years away. You may be hanging stockings with initials on it of people who aren't here anymore. You may sit across the table, the dinner to the Christmas dinner table with family who just want to fight you. You may be staring that down the barrel of a diagnosis that you just don't know how you're going to be able to face. Or you may be worried sick that next year won't get better. And here's the honest is that there's a possibility that it will not get better here and now. But your hope is not in your present circumstance. It's in a person. In the long-awaited good king. He's come, he, and he will come again and make all things right. He loves you. Hope in Christ is never misplaced hope. It's living hope, for that's who he is. He's here. He's faithful and righteous to lead you. I'm not going to preach on it. I'm just going to read it. But this is where he's leading us. To a kingdom where, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who stands as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Christ is leading you to a place of peace and goodwill toward men. Follow him.